three years into Jesus' ministry, coming uh, to a conclusion that his disciples had no idea was coming, he asked the 12, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Picture them sort of looking at each other and wondering what the right answer might be. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say a prophet. You know, sometimes you answer a question with a question, a prophet? And so Jesus says, looks him dead in the eye and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first to respond. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Good answer. The right answer. A blessed answer. In fact, Jesus goes on to, to heap praise on Peter. Peter, you are going to be the rock upon which this church is built. I'm going to give you the keys. Uh, this, the, hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. This is great. This is this wonderful high point for Peter. And as soon as Jesus' true identity is finally, finally revealed, what happens next? He begins to talk about the cross of Christ that they're heading to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die, yet rise again. The cross of Christ, our four-part series ending today, is at the very heart of the gospel. And the cross of Christ is at the very center of what it means to live as a follower of Christ. You would think that they would have known, but we have hindsight to be able to read the testimony and the scriptures to understand what was happening, but they didn't understand all of what was happening. From the very beginning of the ministry, in fact, the very first days, he, he went to John the Baptist, his cousin, to be baptized. And John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was how John communicated to everyone who Jesus was. And yet the, the disciples didn't understand. And they certainly didn't know how he was going to accomplish that mission. In today's passage, he explicitly lays out how he's going to do it, and in turn, what would be asked of his disciples, and in another turn, what's asked of all of us who say, yes, I believe it. He's a man of his word. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then 
He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of God. Verse 27 speaks to the second coming. We'll see the Lord coming uh, in judgment, with judgment, and yet rewards for each person according to what they've done. It speaks to that. But then that last verse, some of you, I tell you, standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming uh, into his kingdom. I believe that's actually speaking to an event that happened in 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It's a seminal event in the history of Israel. The second temple was absolutely laid bare. There's only the Western Wall left there, known oftentimes as the Wailing Wall. It was there six years ago. And Jesus says, this moment, you will, some of you will live for the next 30, 40 years, which would make sense to see these events that would confirm that he is truly the king and judge and everything would be set anew. Let's go to verse 21. Just, just take for a moment and consider, even after three years, even after everything the disciples had seen and heard, all the, the miracles, the healings, the calming of the storm on the sea, and yet this was utterly shocking to them. Jesus, how can you say that about Jerusalem? Jerusalem's the center of our nation. You're going to go there. You're going to reign supreme. You're going to set up your kingdom and we'll be your right-hand men and, and, and we'll be your captains and we'll serve you and, and this will change history. He says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. How can it be, Jesus? Jesus, see, but Jesus, the, the elders and, and the chief priests, the teachers, these are the most respected men in Israel. They've, they've studied Torah their whole lives. Surely, Lord, once they understand all the miracles you've done and they see how prophecy has been fulfilled and they just hear you teach, just take 30 seconds with you, they'll see and they'll know that you are truly the Messiah. Jesus, don't you see that you just need to come and, and take time? Don't get upset, just come and, and they'll bask in your glory. No. They'll turn me over to the Romans. I'll be mocked and beaten and then nailed to a cross. Now, I ask you to imagine this for two reasons, at least two. One, we weren't there. No one, none of us living were there, although this is based on eyewitness testimony. And two, as we've seen with the disciples again and again, they're not quick to speak up, right? They're thinking these things. Oh, but Jesus, but they're thinking those things, but they're keeping it inside. Except for one of them. Who's the loudmouth? Peter. He had just gotten that gold star, right? He had just been told... You're my A number one. You're going to be my rock. So Peter thinks, boys, I'll take it from here. I'll straighten the teacher out. I know better than Jesus. Does anyone ever say that? We do more ways than one. I can fix this. Peter's a fixer. Look at verse 22. He's going to be so polite about it. He, he takes him aside. Let's just, let's go over here king of the universe. And he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen 
to you. What is, he spe- what is he speaking out of? What we would think when we see this love, care, concern. How does Jesus react? What does he respond? Verse 22, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That sounds awfully harsh, doesn't it? He's certainly risking that friendship, speaking that kind of truth, isn't he? But you see, if Christ doesn't go to the cross, then you and I and the whole world remain under judgment, sin, and wrath. Sometimes you need to raise your voice. Sometimes you need to say something that might come across a little harsh to make your point. says, Peter, you are not about the concerns of my father. You're about your own concerns, humanly concerns. Well, why that label Satan, Satan, accuser? Where did that come from? Where, where has Jesus been tempted before in the Gospel of Matthew? Right after he was baptized by John the Baptist, it says that Jesus went out into the wilderness for, for 40 days, and there he was tempted by Satan. And what was the heart of that temptation? What was the high point of that temptation? He whispered into Jesus' ear, you can have all of this. This will be your kingdom along with me. And you can have it all without a cross. The same message whispered in his years at the beginning of his ministry. Now his closest right-hand man is whispering the same thing. A, A crossless Christ no, he did it. He had to do it for love. This is why he came. This is why he, he lived the way he lived and he died the way he died. God in flesh, placing himself under God's own sentence. Friends, if you get nothing else from this message, the final one in this series on the cross of Christ, and it could be anything summed up from our first uh, 13-week series, uh, the beginning of the year, knowing God, I want you to understand the Trinity I can't stress this enough, that the cross is not father against son. Maybe you've read books or you've seen blog posts or you have people that can really quite articulate this idea of cosmic child abuse. No, not at all. That's a lie. The cross was the undertaking of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we spent so many weeks looking at the very character and nature of God. And here we're focused on the love and the sovereign grace of God. Because to understand Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, you must understand the cross of Christ. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did he have to die in such a horrific manner? I mean, couldn't he go some other way, jump off a cliff? or Why this way? This terrible instrument of execution. And so scholars and believers have gone through the scriptures to make sense of this. And there are so many ways that the Bible speaks to the idea of the cross of Christ. The the term there would be atonement, that our sins were atoned for, that there was something There was something that happened, a great exchange. There's so many different illustrations and ideas. I try to pack it all in with Joe's help in mind these past couple weeks since Good Friday to to, to this morning to try to make sense and highlight at least some of them. 
And I'll here I'll just quickly cover some of them. And maybe some of them will say, oh, I've heard that. Oh, I know a song about that. I've read a story about that. I've heard a sermon about that. I've read a book about that. Some are, are, are so beyond our words and comprehension that we need art. We need to sing to put the emotion behind it of Christ's courageous love. And so by way of survey, these are things we need to know. In the Old Testament, the language there in the Hebrew scriptures is about a sacrificial system of, of animals being sacrificed and blood of, of guilt offerings and sin offerings. The whole temple system was pointing to the fulfillment in Christ, that our sin would be paid for, that you could be forgiven. But, but we know the human predicament needs, needs more than just forgiveness, when you greatly offend and hurt someone and you say, please forgive me, and they say, I forgive you, is that the end of the story? Is everything fine now? There also needs to be reconciliation. And so the Bible speaks to that desire we have to be made right, that it speaks to the human predicament of, of alienation. Like, I just, I don't get you and you don't get me. And that's ultimately expressed in how I don't get you, God, what you're doing. Do you get me, God? And so what happens on the cross is also understood not just as forgiving, but also as reconciling so that we could have intimate relationship with God. The Bible has other language that so often, unfortunately, is missing. It talks about, about righteous anger against sin and sinners, we don't like to hear sermons like that, do we? Psalm 5.4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so we talk about how, how God hates sin because he is holy. And that sin is completely contradic contradictory to his, his holy divine nature. And so the Bible speaks to this of sin as, as not just your action. We often make it very personal, but it's a global action. It speaks to it in a way we would say in modern terms of pollution. We've polluted God's creation. That's why we should have good Christian stewards of, of, of the environment. Because when we see that sludge pouring out into clean, beautiful waters in the sound, when we see the salmon dying off, we're seeing a sense of this world dying and decaying. We could say, yes, this is this is sin. Paul will talk about the whole creation groaning in anticipation for being made right. See, it's not just about you and me and, and Jesus. It's, it's global. The Bible also speaks to the concept of propitiation. It's the idea that, that God in his holiness has wrath against sin. And so at the cross of Christ, that penalty was transferred, the penalty or the penal it was transferred or substituted upon Christ. Christ himself took on the devastating impact of sin. And so we could be here and talk for, for quite some time, uh, but we've got the children upstairs in Sunday school. Beyond the physical of what happened on the cross, the mental anguish, psychological anguish, spiritual, all of it, Combine. I wonder, even as Protestants, that we don't have a crucifix. A crucifix is one crucified on the cross, as Catholics do, because they see that sacrifice as so 
central, but also in the mass, Christ is almost being re-sacrificed. We know we say he's, he's risen, the tomb is empty, right? Amen, and hallelujah. And yet, and yet we sterilize it, don't we? When we miss all what scripture teaches of what he did for us. Still more language of the cross. There's language about the, from the marketplace, the idea of, of redemption if you, or, or ransom, thing, something needed to be paid for. And there was this early weird theological conversations. They sort of got off in the weeds as to, well, who exactly is being paid off? Is God the Father being paid off? Was Satan being paid off? Like, no, no, they're just getting a little bit confused, a little bit off in the weeds. The point was something that happened on the cross meant an exchange, a priceless gift, the priceless, precious blood of Christ paying for us. Still more, there's the idea of the new Adam. There was the old Adam, royally messed up, and Christ is the new Adam, the perfect man. There's still more, and this is probably one we would hear most often in a Reformed or Evangelical or American uh, church concept of justification, which just comes from the courtroom. This verdict of guilt is passed, and yet one steps forward. The son says, I will pay for your guilt. And I think I'm sure I've missed some. How I dig it, how many, got at least a few left. <laughs> but at least one I want to close with to mention of all these different concepts of how scripture speaks to the fullness of the cross of Christ. And that is victory on a battlefield. This is most evident during our whole Revelation series, and it's why I spoke to you actually uh, on Easter Sunday. This is where Christ won a victory over the power of sin and death. He stormed the gates of hell, that he uh, freed the captives. He is victorious. We talked about that, that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And what do we sing on Easter Sunday? Ain't no grave going to hold me down. That idea of victory. These are all ways of understanding the cross, why he died for you and for me. Finally, though, why this way? Why did he die a criminal's death? Such a scandalous form of execution. Because no other execution would have corresponded with the extreme condition of humanity under sin and judgment of God. See, when we see a cross, we want to see the cross reign supreme and large in our life or in the church. The degree of our sin so far down below and the height of his grace so high. And any way that we mitigate that, and we try to shrink that down and say, well, you know, maybe God would look into my future and see what a good person I would be, we shrink the cross. In any way we say, well, you know, maybe my family was special compared to those kinds of families. God saw something that would be special about me. I've done so much for him. We shrink the cross. No. What does Paul say? He says, I, I knew nothing but Christ crucified. He wants to see the cross grow larger. At the end of Paul's life, he sees himself saying, I'm the chief among sinners, the one in greatest of need. So that what happens? The cross of Christ, the grace of God, looms supreme. The Son of God gave himself to be enslaved by sin, 
condemned by the law, subject to evil. And this was this great exchange. Kind of crazy, right? Religious people, it was a stumbling block. Secular people, it was foolishness. At least that was the case in Corinth when Paul was speaking to the church there, made up of people both Jew and Gentile. He said, I know what you're thinking. This is, is foolishness, it's a stumbling block, but it is only that to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the saving power of God. It's the same as true then as it is now. Religious folk, represented by the Jews, they find the idea of the cross a stumbling block. We please not talk about that anymore. In fact, if we don't have a sermon about that for the next year, I'll be perfectly fine with it. In fact, why don't we just remove a cross from a sanctuary? Because it's sort of unsightly. Isn't it enough that I'm one of the good people that's living for God now? Then there are the secular people who just look at us Christians and think, you guys are mad. I mean, who ever heard of a crucified God? I mean, a superhero that dies. That doesn't make sense. Like, this doesn't fit or compute. And Paul says, no, no, you're missing it. God is using the foolish things and the weak things in this world to make known his power. It took a lifetime for Peter to learn that lesson and the disciples, the importance of the cross of Christ. Years later, after walking with Jesus, denying himself, carrying his cross, in fact, tradition says that, Jesus, that Peter was crucified upside down. Before that, I'm sure before that, because he wasn't alive much longer, but he wrote this, 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed, Isaiah 53, 5. Six years ago, I had a profound uh, trip of a lifetime to go to Israel and, and Palestine for a couple of weeks. And I walked along the Via Della Rosa the sorrowful way, the, the way of suffering. In the old city, where Jesus carried his cross through the city until he went to Calvary. And as I walked down the path, has anyone been there? Has anyone been to the old city that's here? A couple, couple people. And imagine, I'm looking at these, this uh, cobble walkway, and here you pour, uh, you pour some blacktop, and it lasts, what, five years? And <laughs> these stones are are ancient, and you can imagine that scene on that day. And I imagine the different characters that were all part of the scene. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Simon Peter, who denied Jesus. The leaders and the religious leaders that turned him over to the Romans and Pilate who had him crucified. The crowds crying out as they saw him being mocked, bloodied, carrying his cross through the streets, crying out with some kind of crazy bloodlust. 
And then I imagine Simon of Cyrene, and there's actually a marker of where uh, tradition would hold. This is where he stepped forward to, to take the cross for Jesus for a moment. And I wonder, in that moment, what would I have done? What would you have done? What a human thing. What a selfish thing to even imagine that. Of course, I think of myself as the hero of the story. I would step up. Come on. Please. But this man does have the opportunity to take the cross for even just a few steps. And Jesus had told his disciples and tells us now, in fact, each of us can take up that cross too. Look at verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. But whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. We we may have the right answer. Who's Jesus? He's the Messiah. It's a good answer. It's the right answer. It's a blessed answer. We may have all the different concepts and and illusions and and theological concepts of of the atonement and the cross of Christ. You can go to school for years and years. You can learn it all. We can preach it all. You got it all in your head. But if it's not in your heart and if it's not lived out, then you don't know the faith we are called to. He says we're we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow To deny yourself means to put the mission of Christ's church ahead of your own plans. To deny yourself uh, means you're not embarrassed to bow your head in public in a restaurant to pray for your meal this afternoon. To deny yourself means to speak up for your faith, even if it's unpopular. To deny yourself is to be the first person to run to the other to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. To take up your cross means to resist the allure of the world, to say, no, I don't want that. I want to die to that. Those aren't the priorities of myself or my family. That's not what we are about. As for me and my household, we will serve and follow the Lord. To take up your cross means to control your impulses as a single person. To take up your cross means self-sacrifice, serving of others, even when it costs you the valuable resources that you have. And we talked about the offering, the valuable, precious resource of our time, giving of our time. And it is taking up our cross daily is to find comfort and trusting God is in control. The Lord is at work, as we saw on Good Friday, uh, Genesis uh, 50, verse 20. What you meant for evil, God means for good. God works all things for the good of those who love him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And for some, they say, well, that's too much. That sounds kind of like a boring life, a miserable life. But I would submit to you, it is the most beautiful of lives. It's not asking too much. The reality of the cross of Christ is the way of everlasting life. It's the way of the blessed life, the hopeful life. 
And it's a life that we live together in community in this place. I'd like to invite Rob and the team to come out again. And I'll take a moment to pray for us. Consider those things that you need to deny yourself of. Probably weren't meant to be there in the first place in your life. Lord, what, what, what is it that I need to give over to you, leave behind? What cross are you to take up? Not to take his cross again. It's already finished. We're not, none of us are a savior, but our own unique circumstance and hardships to see I can carry this cross with his grace and his love. And I think of the old hymn, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. So Lord God, we pray that we wouldn't only know a lot about our faith, all the ins and outs of theology, and in this case, the doctrine of atonement, and all the different ways, Lord, that scripture speaks to it, and people of faith have spoken to it for two millennia. No, God, more than that, much more than that, Lord God, we want to have simple, heartfelt commitment to you, to follow you in this way. But God, it's hard. Sometimes we get in the way. Sometimes, like Peter, we think we're doing the right thing. We think our motives are right, but, but you know what's right. So God, speak to our hearts today. We pray that even today, Lord God, there might be something in us that we say, I need to deny myself of this and leave it behind. There might be some way that I need to make a public statement of my faith in my own household, in my neighborhood, at work, at school. There might be some decision, even today, of taking a next step in discipleship. We're all different points in that path, Lord. We know you're walking alongside each and every one of us. God, maybe that next step is to say yes to this campaign of serving with Sunday school just once or twice a summer. Maybe it's going to the next environment and getting some materials. Maybe it's coming to small group. Maybe it's coming here consistently, Lord, and coming on April 30th. Whatever it might be, Lord God, please lead us. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.